Coming up on Tech Nation, what's happened to our cities with the COVID-19 pandemic? Turns out, the same thing that's happened historically when pandemics hit. Harvard economics professors Edward Glazer and David Cutler talk about survival of the city, living and thriving in an age of isolation. Then Dr. Alex Pang's advice about our work life from his 2016 book, Rest, while you get more done when you work less. It's even more relevant now. And Tech Nation Health Chief Correspondent Dr. Daniel Kraft talks to us about something unprecedented, our teeth. All this coming up on this week's Tech Nation. Let's take five with Moira Gunn. This is Five Minutes. In a 2013 Tech Nation interview, ESPN investigative journalist Mark Fainaru-Wada talks about the incidence of repeated brain trauma to professional football players. In journalism, we ask, what did you know, when did you know it, and what did you do when you found out? That, in a nutshell, reflects his book, League of Denial, the NFL, Concussions, and the Battle for Truth. Yeah, it is. That's I mean, when when Steve and I set out to sort of embark on this project, that was exactly what we we sort of were after was what did the NFL know and when did it know it? Um, we were struck to find out that they'd known a lot for two decades, really, and and seemed to rather than embrace the the science, um, in many cases, seemed to bury it as as scientists emerged sort of raising warnings to them about the connection between football and possible brain damage. I think it's interesting. There was a lot of incredibly good reporting that had been done over the years on this topic, for sure. And, and um, you know, the, the New York Times had done some fantastic work. Colleagues of ours at ESPN, um, GQ had done a couple of fantastic pieces on the subject. But it really wasn't until 2010 when Congress actually got involved in the process, called the NFL to the Hill, and really raked them over the coals. It's that point, I think, that the level of awareness really ratchets up. And then I think for us, what was interesting was to see that while you had all this reporting that had been done, there was so much out there that hadn't really been focused on around about what the NFL actually knew, when it knew it, and how it had dealt with that information once it had it. Well, I was so surprised to hear that they had a mild traumatic brain injury committee since 1994. That year is called the year of the concussion in the NFL. There's a number of high-profile players who have concussions. A couple of players have retired prematurely because of concussions. So there's a large sort of growing sense of awareness around concussions in the NFL. And at, at one point during that time, the commissioner of the league, Paul Tagliabue, is at the, the 92nd Street Y in New York. He's being interviewed by the fantastic journalist David Halberstam. Halberstam starts asking him about this issue of concussions in football. And there's just a great scene where... Tagliabue basically dismisses it entirely, and he says, so this is a media-created issue. This is really not a problem. And he starts sort of trotting out statistics that the NFL has that there's maybe one concussion every three games, and Halberstam stops him in the middle, and, and Halberstam has come back from Vietnam and covering and hearing the press you know, get fed these statistics about Vietnam, and he, and he gives this line about feeling like he's back in, in Vietnam, hearing the numbers from, uh, um, from the, from the U.S. military. There are that many people in the country. It can't yeah, be yes. true. <laughs> and and he, there's just roars at the 92nd Street Y. But that's the context in which this MTBI committee is formed. And, you know, the commissioner puts the head of that committee, uh, a gentleman named Elliot Pellman. And that really reflects 
his attitude in that meeting with Halberstam and then appointing this guy, Elliot Pellman, who is not at all a specialist in brains. He's a, he's a rheumatologist. He's a rheumatologist, exactly. And so that, I think, reflected the mentality of the league at the time when it went after this issue of concussions in the sport. This committee ended up producing 16 different research papers on the issue of concussions in the NFL. And for a period of time, they produced a couple of papers that were well-received in the research community. But eventually, that committee, when it got to paper number three, suddenly began to produce a series of papers that sent the message that concussions were not a big deal on the NFL. And time and time again, every paper they produced sent that message. And the interesting thing about all of that research was it ended up in one singular journal. The editor-in-chief of that journal was a guy named Mike Apuzo, a neurosurgeon from USC who also happened to be a consultant to the New York Giants football team. So you had this guy working with the NFL, letting papers be published time and time again that were saying concussions are not a big deal in the NFL. This 2013 Tech Nation interview with ESPN investigative journalist Mark Finaruwada featured his book, League of Denial, The NFL, Concussions, and the Battle for Truth. For his reporting, Mark went on to receive a George Polk Award, the Dick Schapp Award for Outstanding Journalism, and the Associated Press Sports Editor Award. League of Denial was made into a frontline documentary, which itself was awarded a Peabody. I'm Moira Gunn. This is 5 Minutes. 5 Minutes is produced at the studios of KQED-FM in San Francisco. 5 Minutes is a production of Tech Nation Media. I'm Paul Lancourt. From San Francisco, I'm Moira Gunn, and this is Tech Nation. Today on Tech Nation, Harvard University economics professors Edward Glazer and David Cutler talk about the impact of the COVID-19 pandemic on our cities and our lives in their book, Survival of the City, Living and Thriving in an Age of Isolation. Then, whether we're still working from home, have partially transitioned or are completely back in person, Dr. Alex Pang's 2016 book, Rest, While You Get More Done When You Work Less, it continues to speak to us. And Tech Nation Health Chief Correspondent Dr. Daniel Kraft talks to us about our teeth. Tech Nation is underwritten in part by MindK, a global software development force in a world where every business can be global. On the web at mindk.com. And now, Professors Edward Glazer and David Cutler. Well, David and Ed, welcome to Tech Nation. Thank you so much for having us on. Thank you. Now, you write, pandemic disease has an uncanny ability to find the weakest link in the chain and attack there. If you find that people who are the sickest, who are the most vulnerable, those are often the people who pandemic disease hits first. It sort of looks for any entree, if you will. And that's often at the margins of society, at people who are down and out, at people who have multiple other health conditions. So that means we're going to have to worry about all of those situations if we want to prevent pandemic disease from becoming a recurrent aspect of life. And this is more prevalent in urban areas, right? 
Well, certainly the inequality is more prevalent in urban areas. So you have the juxtaposition of rich and poor and the juxtaposition of people who are thought that they were invulnerable living next to people who, who are quite vulnerable. And that historically has been one of the reasons why uh, richer urbanites have invested in the kinds of technologies like sewers and aqueducts that have protected the whole city was that even though they could protect themselves just by buying their own own water or having their own uh, septic system, they recognized that they were vulnerable from diseases that started among the poor populations. And this has been, as your book points out, an example after example, pandemics have been the enemy of cities uh, for as long as we've had cities. For 2,500 years, since the, the plague of Athens struck down that um, amazing, you know, tech city of its time, uh, the, the, the Athens of Pericles, they've come and come again. And sometimes when they've st- struck cities that were already vulnerable, which Athens was in, in 430 BC because it was at war with Sparta, or even more so as Constantinople was uh, a thousand years later when the Roman uh, world was teetering on the edge of a precipice. In those cases, the, the plague has, has pushed society over into, into darkness. In other times, society has been much more robust as it was in the 19th century, where we built technology and we built institutions that protected our cities and our world from disease. Now, you point out that in the 14th century, actually, the city of, is it Ragusa, on the uh, Dalmatian coast, which would be present-day uh, Croatia near near Dubrovnik, it had a very familiar uh, strategy for handling pandemics. It did. Uh, Ragusa, now Dubrovnik, as, as you say, uh, was the pioneer of quarantines, where they would keep boats that were coming in from plague-infested areas outside the city for 40 days. Now, the 40 days, of course, had no medical basis whatsoever. It, it apparently was more about biblical precedent, uh, the 40 days in the wilderness, the 40 days of the flood, and so forth. But this was the first attempt that really cities or governments had to plague-proof themselves. And it's a quite sensible strategy, although often weak enforcement or quarantines that came too late meant that plague still got through. And certainly in the 19th century, when we tried to have quarantine that protected us from yellow fever in the first decades of that century, and then cholera after 1832, it was by and large not successful. They were too late. They were leaky sieves. Uh, The mosquitoes flew from the boats to the shore. Whatever it was, it didn't work. And so quarantine, which had been moderately effective against a disease that's carried by rats, is less good against a disease that comes in the water or that's carried by mosquitoes. And I must say, we think of this frequently as happening in Europe or far away, even long ago. But even today, Cleveland and Pittsburgh are smaller than they were in the 1930s. They are. And disease is probably not a major reason why for that. But certainly the disease environment is a big one affecting cities. You know, what what Ed was pointing out, which is true, is with a little bit of knowledge, you can do a little bit of good. But with a lot of knowledge and the ability to act, you can do a ton of good. You know, so if you're not 100% quarantined, then something will get through and then you're in trouble. Whereas when you know exactly what to do, then you can do a whole lot better. Um, And so that's, I think, one of the key lessons here is that you have to be able to apply what you know consistently and without exception. Now let's look at, say, in the last 50 years, how technology has changed the urban landscape and the suburban landscape. I mean, it doesn't look like it used to look. 
Not at all. Not at all. We have always built our urban environments around the prevalent transportation technology during the era in which the city was emerging. So if you look at our oldest urban spaces, both you know, places like Beacon Hill in Boston or, or Greenwich Village in New York City, or of course, the cities of, of old Europe, right? These are pedestrian cities. The blocks are narrow. The streets are, are uh, thin. And they're built on a very human scale. Then we have 19th century cities that are built around the streetcar and the elevated railroad like Manhattan, right, as a whole. And it stretches on because these technologies enable us to uh, just travel much longer distances. And yet the buildings are still reasonably close together because with these technologies, you still have to walk. You still have to walk to the subway stop. You still have to walk from the subway stop to your final destination, to your place of work. And then, of course, in the 20th century, the car upended everything, right? Because the car is a point-to-point technology. It doesn't require any walking, really. And so it, it enabled us to sort of consume huge amounts of space, to sprawl out, and we reshaped our urban spaces fundamentally around the car. Of course, the mid-20th century is not just about the car. It's also about other technologies, which in some sense eat up distance, right? It's about radios and televisions that enable people in far-flung homes to enjoy the pleasures of an urban music hall. And in some sense, those middle decades were a great leveling of space in, in the U.S. They were also a time in which industry, again, abetted by transportation technologies, highways, container ships, industries left the old cities of the Northeast and the Midwest and moved to lower cost locales, whether or not they were sunbelt states that had right to work laws or countries across the oceans where wages were far lower. But we really reshaped America's entire metropolitan landscape because of changes in technology. And in today's world, I mean, I live in San Francisco and it's like, a place where young people love to come and live for a few years until, until it turns over, till the realities of life hit. Uh, but they seem to be more behind them. And the greater area includes uh, Silicon Valley. So we have buses from Google and all the places down there bringing people here. And then COVID hit and everybody went home to mom and dad. It is amazing. So we in 1980, when Alvin Toffler wrote The Third Wave, he was really predicting a world in which the sort of information technology of his era was going to make face-to-face contact and the offices and cities that enable that contact obsolete. And he really predicted that, you know, cities like Chicago would be forests of empty skyscrapers, right? And then all of a sudden, for, for the next 40 years, right, he was completely and totally wrong because, in fact, the areas that had the best technology, Silicon Valley, became renowned as one of the most famous, the most famous geographic cluster in the world. And it is exactly as you say, it's both about young people wanting to be near each other, wanting to have fun in cities, and also about a new business model that was much more information intensive, that involved much more of the collaboration that abets creativity. And so, you know, Google didn't send everyone home. They bought the Googleplex. They bought a million and a half square feet in downtown Manhattan. They tried to create a playground at work where young, smart people would want to come and would want to learn from one another. Right. And this was the model, which, you know, it was fueled by the fact that the returns to being smart, the returns to innovation increased enormously because of new technologies, because of globalization. And we are a social species that gets smart by being around other smart people. And for that reason, cities really came back in, in, in many ways, at least until COVID hit. Of course, one of the downsides is that you really can't afford to live there unless you're extraordinarily wealthy. And so a lot of cities have become 
basically playgrounds for very rich people. And that's a problem because not everyone in life is going to start off as a computer programmer. Some people are going to start off in other occupations and they want to work their way up. And there's virtually no way to live in vast parts of the Bay Area and work your way up. And so that's that gets to be a really big problem with mobility in society if you say, we want a huge, lovely city, but only you're only allowed in it if you've got a lot of wealth. You put the percentage of the American workforce working remotely before the pandemic at roughly 5%. They've self-reported. But by May of 2020, just say three months later, uh, two months later, 35%, 49 million people were working remotely. Has that been sustained throughout the pandemic? So not in the country as a whole. So we've gone from, as you say, almost 50 million people working remotely to more like 20 million working remotely over the last 18 months. Much of America has gotten back to normal. And of course, working remotely was never a big thing for huge swaths of the American population. I mean, in May 2020, at the at the apogee of remote work, right, only 5% of Americans who didn't have high school degrees were working remotely. Only 15% of Americans who had high school degrees and no college were working remotely, as opposed to 68.9% of Americans with uh, advanced degrees who were working remotely. And, you know, today, we still have a significant number of Americans with advanced degrees who are working remotely, but very few uh, of the less educated parts of America. And of course, the, the continuation of remote work is particularly obvious in the sort of highest, most visible office towers, right, that, that house knowledge workers. And there's there's data from a, a company which called Castle Technologies that does the sort of key swab swipes to sort of show whether or not you're entering the building or not. So they operate those. And their numbers suggest that, you know, you still have in places like New York occupancy rates for these office towers, which are 70% down relative to the pre-pandemic. So much of America is back at work, but in some sense, the, the densest and most lucrative core of urban commercial real estate, of urban, of urban uh, office markets, they're still empty. You're listening to Tech Nation. I'm Moira Gunn, and my guests today are Harvard University economics professors Edward Glazer and David Cutler. Dr. Glazer's work is focused on cities and their evolution, while Dr. Cutler is focused on health economics and public economics. They both have so many illustrious credentials, it'd be truly epic to attempt to read them all to you. You can find them all online, and they're here today, fortunately, with Survival of the City, Living and Thriving, in the age of isolation. Well, I'm a professor too. And it seemed one day they said, two days from now, your classes are going online. Did the same thing happen to you? It did. Of course, it it did that everywhere in colleges, high schools, elementary schools, and so on. One of the things that we as a, a educational industry learned from that is that the Zoom experience is really not a substitute for the in-person experience. We collectively, as in teachers around the world, put in enormous effort to try and figure out how to make Zoom work just as well as in-person. And students put in enormous effort to try and make it work too. And despite all those enormous efforts, I don't think anyone has the sense, and studies suggest that it really was not the same experience. And so some of what we've learned, I think, you know, like before the pandemic, you could certainly read any number of articles about how um, technology was going to 
you know, make outmoded forms of education was going to disrupt the education industry the way that it had disrupted, you know, purchasing things and so on. And of course, you don't see that anymore because nobody has yet figured out the way to make the educational experience be close to what it is in person by doing it online. And it's not that you can't teach the material. It's just that education involves so much more than one person standing there and teaching material to a classroom of people. And that's what couldn't be replicated. So I think that really suggests caution about the notion that even technologies that people that nobody had dreamed we could have were go are going to change everything because so far what we've learned is they don't change everything. Was there anything that was better for each of you or either of you? <laughs> Well, I think all of us have, have enjoyed, at least for a while, the the absence of the commute. Uh, but I cannot emphasize enough, uh, you know, how joyful it is for me to be back around my students, both graduate and undergraduate. And certainly, it differs a lot on you know how long your relationships are have been with those students. So David and I wrote a book together without seeing each other once. We've been friends and co-authors for thirty years, and we you know we can finish each other's sentences. We try not to, but you know. Try getting a 19-year-old excited about mathematical economics who's never met you before uh, by Zoom. It's just really, really hard. And even new relationships with graduate students felt very stilted, were very hard to make work. And of course, we we at least, you know, we, we teach a, a very, we're very privileged in terms of who we teach. The Zoom experience is, is far worse with younger kids who just have huge problems concentrating when they're on computers. I mean, there are really effective studies looking at for, for again, for younger kids. And you know, they typically find that Zoom education is somewhere between dismal and counterproductive, right? It's it's really it really is has been a sort of a terrible thing for the children of the world that, that they've had to go through this. There's some applicability here in the business world. Um, initially, everyone said, "Well, hey, this is all working pretty good," and then they realized they already knew each other. They already had a relationship. I don't know what how the, how they would bring new people on. And that's exactly what you saw. They weren't bringing new people on, right? So even though Microsoft told us that their programmers were just as productive, overall new postings for programmers on Burning Glass Technologies were down 40% from the beginning of 2020 to the end of 2020. And these new postings for remote, remote jobs, not just programmers, all over the place stayed way lower uh, through basically the entire pandemic, largely because firms were uncomfortable with the idea of onboarding new workers via Zoom. Now, let's get back to how we should think about our cities and, and our urban areas. And I can't overstate the rich fabric of descriptions of urban areas over the years that you bring. And we talked about Manhattan. Let's talk about New York City in the late 1800s. Tenements filled with Irish immigrant families living on straw on the floor, the basement of the building filled with sewage, and there were no laws to shut the building down. Let's talk about Dr. Stephen Smith, both what he did and how that's a perspective on what we might expect from our cities. So you're exactly right. In what happened in city after city, thankfully, is that very forward-thinking powerful, astute people involved in public health just more or less insisted and sometimes bullied their way into getting public health measures to happen. It wasn't always that the government was in favor of it. Sometimes they just said, you know, we're going to create something outside the government uh, or we're going to go to a different level of government. But what you saw is cities going elsewhere for water. That is, they knew they needed clean water and cities 
built sewer systems and sanitation systems. At that point in time, early in the 20th century, America's cities were spending more on public health infrastructure than the rest of the government was spending on everything. That was really what cities did. But even then, you still had situations where, you know, they would bring the water in, but then the landlord didn't want to pay to hook up the tenement to the water system, you know, because it was a low rent building. It was, you know, whatever it was. And ultimately what happened is that the richer people in the cities realized that if that like what where we started off, which is if not everyone is involved, if there are any weak links, then disease will find its way in. And once it's in, it's in. And so therefore, the only solution was compulsion. And so what New York City did and what other cities did is it then just compelled. It said to the landlords, we don't care what you think. or to, And to the tenants, we don't care what you think. This is what you're going to do. And if you're not going to do this, you're gone. And so that that was really the sort of last mile problem is a huge issue here because, you know, you can bring cl- clean water to the city and some will use it, but you need everyone to use it and you need everyone to be connected to sanitation and so on. And so that was really, in some sense, the genius was to say that we're going to do through public health what makes all of us better, um, even if some people are not willing to pay for it on their own for social reasons it's worth doing. And Stephen Smith himself is sort of a remarkable figure. I mean, our view is that the, the 19th century cities are sort of a hinge of history when governments go from being basically agents of death, which is pretty much all that governments do prior to 1800 is kill is kill people, to actually being agents that save lives. And sometimes that was sort of from the top down. I mean, the story of the Croton Aqueduct that we tell of Stephen Allen in our book is he's a mayor, he's a public official. But Stephen Smith, he's a doctor. Right? He's a doctor who comes from upstate New York. He's just an ordinary person. And yet he becomes an incredible public health entrepreneur who, you know, gathers support. He does investigations. He puts together this massive report on just how unsanitary uh, New York City is. And, you know, you're, you're, it's clear reading this that they're really trying to sort of turn the stomach of every of every reader. And he manages to push through this metropolitan public health bill that creates this entity that public health authority that then can go out and find the tenement owners who don't connect to the system. So the lesson of this is is we can't just expect the solutions for the cities of the 21st century to come from our elected officials. We need to actually take it upon ourselves and be the kind of, of urban entrepreneurs that Dr. Stephen Smith was in his own day. You talk about the last mile problem. Is that what we're having with vaccinations in the United States? <laughs> It's it's a slightly different last mile problem in that. Um, and actually, uh, you don't have to answer that because it's not in your. <laughs> no, no, but I will. No, no, but I will say that I will say that you know this debate is that you know about freedom and so on is very reminiscent of older debates about well you know how, who are you to tell me that I should do X or Y, you know we've sort of seen this a lot in the past few decades about you know when can you opt out of vaccines and what do you have to do about HIV testing and. You know, what safety precautions does one have to take? We are, Ed and I live, of course, in the Northeast. And for a long time, there were issues about motorcycle uh, helmets. Did you have to wear a motorcycle helmet? And so we see this all the time. What has happened over time in society is that the public health view has generally won out. And so, and we saw that, you know, a century ago with the tenements and the sanitation and water. Nowadays, there's no area where you can't, where you can ride a, a motorcycle without a helmet. 
um, with mandatory testing for various things, with reporting of disease rates and so on. The public health views went out because it's too obvious how much the spread of disease is reduced by taking those measures. It's so obvious that you just have to do it. You're listening to Tech Nation. I've been speaking with Harvard professors Edward Glazer and David Cutler about survival of the city, living and thriving in an age of isolation. We'll talk more after a break. Podcasts of Tech Nation are available on NPR One, Spotify, and Alexa Podcast, among others. Direct links are available at technation.com. In the second half of our show, Dr. Alex Pang talks about the interrelation between resting your mind and creative solutions. And Tech Nation Health Chief Correspondent Dr. Daniel Kraft talks to us about teeth. Stay with us. You're listening to Tech Nation. I've been speaking with Harvard professors Edward Glazer and David Cutler about survival of the city, living and thriving in an age of isolation. We've been talking about public health and vaccination policy. The public health views went out because it's too obvious how much the spread of disease is reduced by taking those measures. It's so obvious that you just have to do it. And so my hope is that, A, A, we don't have these fights, but that if we do, that we recognize and can demonstrate the public health measures so that you're never going to get 100% of people to believe the same thing, but you can get enough there that you can really do well without you know, without the huge, huge fights. And this is not new. I mean, there was a vaccine revolt in Rio de Janeiro in in the early 1900s because of a a pioneering public health person, Oswaldo Cruz. So vaccine resistance is an old feature of of urban life. I was surprised at the beginning of the pandemic of how many people did not understand the capabilities and limitations of WHO, the World Health Organization. And uh, I'd like to, you know, they can't go beyond their 
Charter. It's it's a it's a an agency of the United Nations, um, and it's beholden to its members. It really can't tell anyone what to do. Um, and you're proposing a NATO for uh, global health. What could a NATO-like organization do that the World Health Organization today cannot? Yeah. So if you think about the world's great problems, there are probably three of them. There is preventing nuclear catastrophe, there's reducing pandemic disease, and there's climate change, which is, of course, also a component of the second of those. The first of those, the preventing nuclear catastrophe, is the one where the world has had the most success. So it was certainly feared with the invention of nuclear weapons that the world would see them used much more than, you know, just the first uh, uh, use in uh, in Japan to end World War II, that there would be a nuclear war that would be World War III and that, that vast parts of the planet would be destroyed. And what the West did was it invented a system that was designed to prevent nuclear war, both nuclear and conventional war with the Soviet Union. And it was very strict you know, so there were rules about entry and the rules were, you know, if one country was attacked then all countries were attacked and there was a professionalism to it, which is our job is to prevent pan, uh, our job is to prevent nuclear war. And, and that is what we're going to do. And we're going to do all the steps that are needed to do that. And you signed on and you got the benefits or you didn't sign on and you didn't get the benefits. And in fact, admission to the club was very much by invitation. You had to be invited and everyone had to agree that you're appropriate and so on. That in many ways is an even easier problem than world health and then climate change because there are only a certain number of countries that can uh, do nuclear war. And of course, they can be destroyed as well. But it, 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 that can do nuclear weapons. They can be destroyed in a nuclear war. So, um, we, so, so, so pandemic disease is even harder. And yet, as you said, we have an organization that cannot order anything. Um, the budget of the World Health Organization depends on members choosing to pay contributions. Its total budget is actually less than the budget of many large hospital systems in the U.S. That is, its entire budget is less than, for example, a hospital system in Boston. It um, uh, doesn't have any authority to go to countries and say, you must clean this up, or you must practice these safety precautions, or you must have reporting of disease so that the world can know what's going on. Um, it can't go to pharmaceutical companies and say, look, we need this production more than you can do now. So therefore, these vaccines, you have to give the technology to, to low-income countries where they can produce it as well. So it's, it's all sort of consensus-driven, which is fine if you reach consensus, like the WHO did spectacularly in reducing polio around the world because there was consensus to do that and there was the time to do it and they sort of did it. But when you're in an emergency, that's not what you, you, you don't operate by consensus. We didn't fight World War II by asking people to help out. We fought World War II by requiring certain things. And so that I think that it's going to have to look closer to World War II or preventing World War III than it is to let's all agree on what are the appropriate steps here. And that's and the the model that we have, the model that's very successful is the NATO model. Now, obviously, you can't sort of pick up one and change the word and then and then set it down in the other and, and say it's going to work. So that's not what we're saying. But what we're saying is that many of the features of that, the mandatoriness, the consequences, 
associated with things, the professionalism and not the leaning towards which way the money, you know, if you say one thing, the money is for other valuable initiatives is going to dry up. So I can't say that and so on. So all of those sorts of things we have to take out of the equation and say, look, if this is a world scientific issue, we have to use the world's scientific apparatus to solve it and not the world's political involvement on each step of it. And so that's really where where we where we come out here is to say, let's apply some of what has been successful to situations that have been only partly successful. The other important thing about the word NATO is it reminds us of how much we spent to stop you know, stop nuclear war to protect to protect the West, um, and that in fact preventing pandemic is also and must be a big ticket item. We must be prepared to actually spend significant numbers of billions of dollars in order to protect us from events like this one, which cost trillions as well as millions of lives. And so this may well involve, and and I hope it involves, a large-scale swap where wealthier countries like the U.S. and the U.K. agree to fund sanitary infrastructure in the developing world in exchange for developing world countries agreeing to implement hygienic rules, whether or not those rules mean connecting to the water system, as in 19th century New York, or separating humans away from wild animals. One thread that goes through your book, and you might miss it if you don't think about it as a thread or some very specific topics, but one thread that's undeniable is equality of justice. What does that have to do with our cities? (laughs) You can't point at each other. Somebody's (laughs) got to talk. (laughs) I I think the, so uh, for me, this comes out of, you know, looking at what's happened in terms of the pragmatic consensus in cities that was sort of very widespread in 2001 when uh, the Twin Towers were destroyed by terrorists. And uh, the the city of New York, the country, rallied around the the seemingly pragmatic mayor, Rudy Giuliani. And it was sort of agreed that cities needed to do these things like fight crime and be relatively pro-business. And it was believed that this rising tide would lift all boats. For much of the past 15 years, that pragmatic consensus has gradually unraveled. And it means that our cities are far more fractious than they were. And there's far less of a sense of common destiny. And that makes them weak. It makes our cities weak against pandemic when people feel a burning urge to protest injustice in policing and going out to protest en masse during a, during a, a, a pandemic. It, it makes our cities weak when we, we feel like we have to, um, you know, we have battles over, over gentrification that pay one group of relatively disenfranchised urbanites, the long-term residents of, of an ethnic neighborhood, against another group that's not all that privileged, which is sort of young, up-and-coming urbanites who are just looking for a place to live. I mean, these are our battles that, that make our cities weaker. And the, the, as you say, you know, the quest for justice and the quest particularly to make cities more open to outsiders is a huge part of, of the book, because ultimately cities are always going to be unequal places. I mean, it was Plato who wrote in the Republic that every city of whatever size is in reality two cities, one a city of the rich, the other a city of the poor, and they're perpetually at war with one another. And cities shouldn't apologize for that. Cities have rich and poor people because they attract rich people by being fun places to be rich. And they attract poor people by being less intolerable places to be poor. But that inequality 
is only acceptable, is only livable if cities are fulfilling their historic role of turning poor children into middle income or wealthy adults. And too often in America, they're failing to do that. That really comes out strongly in the Opportunity Atlas data that our colleague Raj Chetty has put together, which really shows that at least for the, the cohort of children born around 1980, you're much worse off if you grew up in a city than you are if you grew up in a low density area. And the need to address these longstanding inequities is huge and hugely important. But cities need to do so in a way that doesn't repel their taxpayers, that doesn't repel their richest residents, that doesn't repel their uh, their businesses. Because we've been through that script before. In the 1970s, progressive dreams, entirely understandable progressive dreams, collided with the reality of suburbanization, collided with the reality of deindustrialization of our cities. And places like New York in 1975 teetered on the edge of bankruptcy. And we must make sure as we go forward that we get smarter government, that we get better government that does more to create more justice. At the same time, we do so in a way that, that lifts, you know, doesn't repel the taxpayers and that makes the city open for all. This is clearly an element of of the, the final section, which describes creating a, a plan for how we return cities to their prior strength and, and defend against the next pandemic. And this is clearly the the balancing of reducing vulnerability and creating opportunity. Um, and you break some things down for state, cities and states and some things down for states. We've talked about, uh, already talked globally what we might do and, and uh, internationally. Um, what about states? Why are you separately addressing states and what might they do? There are a set of urban policies that are really governed at the state level and that uh, you can't expect localities to change on their own. So, for example, the most important example of this is housing policies, that localities uh, tend to reflect their current residents. And uh, that may, may mean, particularly in leafy suburbs, that they are about making sure that the current homeowners don't experience the inconvenience of any new construction, don't experience any more crowding in their schools, don't experience the, the loss of property values that could come from supplying more housing. Now, the problem with that perspective is that by saying not, not in my backyard, we're saying no to new families that would like to come to Silicon Valley. We're saying no to poor people that would like to find opportunity there. And you cannot expect the locality to, to change. Uh, there's just no way that you can jawbone a wealthy suburb into thinking that uh, permitting a whole lot of affordable housing is going to be a good idea for them. It's really got to have happen at the state level where you put limitations on how restrictive localities can be, where the state has a greater ability to see who are the losers when localities limit housing, who are the people who are being locked out um, because they do get to vote at the state level, even if they don't get to, to vote at the level of the individual suburb. So the path to affordability in Silicon Valley runs through Sacramento. It runs through the California State House and, and through legislation that, like the one that was just passed that makes it somewhat easier to permit at the local level. We Just one other reason for this. So we live in an area of the country. So the West and the East are very different in the sense that in West, you have huge counties and everyone is in the same school district. And we're in an area where there are just a bazillion different local school districts. This is in Massachusetts and in the, the Boston, Cambridge area. Yeah, this is in Massachusetts in the Boston area. And it is very if you wanted to increase, for example, school spending in the low income towns nearby um, Boston, it is very hard to do it off the local tax base because the local tax base just doesn't support that. 
So any kind of redistribution that you want to do from better off to less well off has to come through a higher level of government than the local area. And even if you did have sort of the tax base there at, at the moment, you'd worry that if you impose the taxes that you really need to have the schools that you really need and the safety that you really need in the poorer areas, that would drive away the tax base, which it certainly could because the towns are very small and people can move a lot. So one of the principles of economics is that it is very, very difficult to do any kind of redistribution at the very local level, because otherwise you worry that people will flee because they're going to want to not pay for that redistribution. And so that's a, that's where you need to go at higher up levels of government, the state government, the federal government, whatever it is. But the local level is great for some things, but it's terrible for others. Well, gentlemen, I, 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 as I said before, this is, there's a rich fabric to this book. It's very readable. And uh, I, I, we haven't even begun to talk about all the things that you talk about here. So uh, thank you for coming in. You're always welcome on Tech Nation. Thank you so much for having us on. Thank you so much. Thank you. My guests today are Harvard professors Edward Glazer and David Cutler. Their book is Survival of the City, Living and Thriving in an Age of Isolation. It's published by Penguin Press. I'm Moira Gunn. You're listening to Tech Nation. The pandemic sent some 50 million Americans home to work. And now, either transitionally or rather abruptly, we're going back to various profiles of working in person. Still, the border between when and how we are working and the rest of our lives has blurred. Dr. Alex Pang has some advice and some science. Ernest Hemingway, who argued that you should end your day in mid-sentence. You, know, you don't go to the end of the paragraph or the end of the chapter and then the next morning have to face the existential terror of a blank page. But instead, if you, you know, uh, if you stop while you're still hot, then the next morning you come back you always remember what you were working on. You're able to finish that line of dialogue. That provides a little bit of a warm-up, and it becomes a little easier for you to get started the next day. But what scientists found was that when you gave people a creativity test, kind of a you know an association test, how many interesting uses for you know a pencil could you come up with? And people knew, and they were told that they would do this for a couple minutes, and then they do some math problems, and then come back to the test. Those people had a score after their 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 scores went up after doing the math problems, which were you know sort of engaging enough so that they couldn't sort of kind of cheat and keep thinking about the uses of the pencil. They then ran the same test with a second group. But they didn't tell them that there was going to be that this was a three-part experiment. Um, this or of the second round of creativity test was just that was a surprise. Those scores went down, and what that suggests is that the first group, because they knew that they were going to uh, going to come back to this problem, were actually working on it subconsciously. And I think that there is there are lots of cases in or you know of authors mathematicians painters who discover this on their own and that for them recognizing that they're going to be better off if they stop work today and just let this idea turn over in their minds go off and do something else and trust that their creative some subconscious 
is going to take this up because they've been working so hard on it. That actually is something that turns out to be really valuable. And it's a great illustration of the way that REST turns out to, uh, or of, to be kind of a skill. It's something that you can learn how to employ in order to become more creative, to become more productive, to help you solve problems, and that you can sort of arrange in your day so in sort of relationship to your work so that in essence, what you're doing, sort of what you're doing and what or if, you know, people as different as Scott Adams and Charles Darwin did was kind of pass ideas back and forth, pass problems back and forth between their conscious minds and their subconscious minds. And so they were able to get the benefits of rest, even while, or of, even while their subconscious kept working on problems on their behalf. Dr. Alex Pang described this and other phenomenon when I spoke to him about his 2016 book, Rest, Why You Get More Done When You Work Less. While our Tech Nation Health chief correspondent, Dr. Daniel Kraft, has covered a wide range of topics, he has never talked to us about teeth. Today, that changes. Well, we all have teeth, or hopefully we still have them. Um, I'm not a big fan of going to the dentist, though I've only really had one cavity in my life. My mother credits to the fact that she took uh, uh, extra um, fluoride tablets when she was pregnant with me in, in the United Kingdom way back when. Um, but what I think is interesting about the dental world or oral care is that it really completely overlaps with general medicine and healthcare. The the sort of oral hygiene that you have and the environment in your mouth plays a really interesting and key role in your risk for everything from cardiovascular disease to uh, to dementia. And so I think there's a slew of new technologies and approaches to sort of reshaping and reimagining the world of, of going to the dentist. Well, whether you go to the dentist or not, the truth is, is that there's a whole lot of stuff going on in your mouth, as you're saying, sort of either linked to or predictive of other conditions or situations in your body. I mean, let's go through some of the things that we know about. Well, one of the clear ones, I think we've, we've talked on, on this show before about the microbiome. Most of, most of us think about the, the bugs and bacteria in our gut and how they play a role in everything from inflammatory bowel disease to risk, to risk for um, obesity uh, and beyond. But obviously, there's a microbiome in your mouth, and uh, that can play a role, obviously, when you have gingivitis. That's when sort of the, the bacteria in your mouth have gone a little uh, on the inflammation side of the cascade. But um, researchers have found that certain types of bacteria, one in particular called P. gingivale, is very associated with risk for Alzheimer's and other dementias, might play a role in sort of the, the brain-mouth-body connection. And by uh, getting rid of that microbiome component, it might lower your risk of getting dementia in the future. And there's even just as we've done in intensive care units and patients who have bad GI infections from a, a bug called C. difficile, there are folks looking at rebooting the microbiome of your mouth, not with a fecal transplant, but with an oral microbiome transplant to sort of repopulate the population there to give you healthier gums and maybe impact other elements of your overall health. Are there... Well, this is a good question. How do you know you have that particular bacteria which has been linked to Alzheimer's? 
Well, now we're in the age of sequencing. You can sequence your genome or you can sequence your microbiome. So there are companies now that are offering the sequencing of all parts of your skin to your mouth, to your gut and beyond. And the databases are growing where we can start to associate, you know, what bugs are there with your metabolism. Even a recent study showed that uh, for some individuals and myself included, who didn't really grow up liking broccoli or cauliflower or Brussels sprouts, maybe because of a particular bacterial population in your mouth, which when they see those sorts of vegetables make a certain sulfite uh, compound, which is very odoriferous and doesn't taste very good. And that contributes to kids and their parents and vice versa, who often share microbiomes and their adversity to certain vegetables. So there's an excuse for some of us. Um, so that's one component. Um, another component that's getting interesting is, uh, you know, clearly the ability, how do you brush your teeth? We're all familiar with the standard toothbrush. Now there's fancy ones that uh, have vibration and, and oscillation. There's even some who've now developed almost what look like 3D printed mouth guards that you can put in your mouth and give you handless brushing. So that might give you much better oral hygiene care, given that even if you're brushing your teeth for two minutes, how much time is the brush head on any one tooth or another? And then that aligns even with this idea of, we've talked about, you know, this idea of quantified self and connected internet of medical things devices that are now standard connected toothbrushes that will track on your phone with Bluetooth how often and how long you've been brushing your teeth so you can gamify it. That's been done for kids with an app called Brush. So you can gamify your kids who often don't like to brush your teeth, mine, mine included. And that might be even connected to your uh, dental health insurance to show that if you're doing your toothbrushing, maybe you have a lower premium and you get some other bonuses. So that's that fun, interconnected, almost gamification, digitization world of dental care that's getting uh, particularly impactful. I'm really impressed by the... Uh... Uh, the potential of what's in your mouth changing how you perceive broccoli and cauliflower and Brussels sprouts, the whole idea of mothers arguing with children and all this kind of thing that came down to bacteria in your mouth. That's amazing. Yeah, they, they, uh, a recent publication that really shows that the certain population of bacteria uh, metabolizes those sorts of cauliflower Brussels sprout types in a way that really makes it taste particularly bad. So uh, again, it's nice to have a, a biologic excuse, but it kind of takes it to the ear that we're now in this era of, you know, multiomics. And some of that is, you know, based on the bugs in your mouth, but others are based on our ways to understand our base genome and our risk for getting caries or, 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 uh, or um, if we can have straight teeth or crooked teeth. Uh, clearly now in this digital virtualized age, uh, many of us grew up getting traditional braces, but now you can 3D scan your mouth, uh, initially at the dentist's office, but now even at, at home or do a mouth print. And we get a 3D printed set of uh, basically uh, mouth guards that can slowly reshape your uh, teeth without having to have braces. So that's that's changed the game. And that can be done you know, basically through telemedicine today without ever needing to go see a dentist or orthodontist. So it's disruptive to the orthodontist. Other um, Groups are trying to develop kind of the Ubers of, of of dental care, where you know you press a button on your app and you can have a, a an exam uh, of your oral cavity and talk to a potential dentist, um, or they can come to you in a, uh, or your workplace in sort of a, a dental uh, uh, mobile uh, clinic. So that kind of Uberization is coming, and then the field that's you know blended with teledentistry. And then the other fields that are impacting health and medicine broadly, like artificial intelligence, are really starting to play a role in upskilling and enabling the dentist or the dental tech. When they look at that x-ray of your teeth, they may have missed an impacted molar that you weren't having symptoms for or, or a dental cavity before it was very evident. 
So AI is enhancing the ability to read not just chest x-rays, but also mouth uh, x-rays and, and connected to the workflow of the clinician, uh, of the dentist and the dental office often to help them do billing and, uh, um, and sorting of the whole process of, of dental care. So a lot of interesting things are coming together that cross from traditional medicine, technology and dentistry. And a final area that impacts uh, dentistry now well is the world of 3D printing or digital manufacturing. Some of you might have 3D printers at home for you know, printing little parts of toys out. You can now 3D print houses and uh, maybe even 3D print organs, but several groups are working at sort of 3D printing. Let's say you lose a tooth in a trauma or you're doing a mouth reconstruction. Those could be personalized and 3D printed to represent uh, and match your exact mouth and dentition. And part of that also blends with this world of augmented and virtual reality. If you're about to go get a, a tooth repair or um, any sort of other element for, 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 for your face, you can see what's going to happen ahead of time with augmented reality, sort of choose your, your new mouth. Or if you're about to go in the dentist chair, the world of virtual reality, many of us get stressed out on the dentist chair, put on a VR headset like the Oculus Quest and be at a beach or somewhere relaxing or watching a concert and not thinking about <laughs> someone who's drilling on your, uh, uh, on your insides. So a very exciting time to, to blend technologies, uh, crossing oral, uh, oral care, dental care and beyond. Well, I had to laugh because my dentist is one of these people who just loves new technology. And uh, I had to have a, a cap replaced. And he would normally have taken the impressions and then given me a temporary one and then call me when the cap would come back from the lab, the, you know, big L, big A, big B. And then, okay, now we'll put it on. And so that's what I was expecting. And Everything went according to plan. And then all of a sudden he rolls in this cart that was like, oh, the, the, it was slightly bigger than a laptop as you look down on it, but it was, oh, maybe four feet tall. And it just rolled in and had a little screen on top. And, uh, then he just dialed in these things and it was showing what it was and he's carving the bottom and it's, you know, picking out colors. Cause it was like, you know, what a nice porcelain cap. I don't see any of this metal we used to have. And then he just pushes a button. He goes, okay, this will take about 15 or 20 minutes. <laughs> Pop out the cap as he's talking to me. And I'm like, well, how could that happen? You know? <laughs> so everything is changing, changing dramatically. There you go. The future is coming faster than you think, even to your mouth. So keep smiling. <laughs> Absolutely. Thanks so much, Daniel. See you next time. Thanks, Myra. Tech Nation Health Chief Correspondent, Dr. Daniel Kraft, is a physician, scientist, and innovator. More information is available at danielcraftmd.net. For Tech Nation, I'm Moira Gunn. Tech Nation and its regular segment, Biotech Nation, are produced at the studios of KQED-FM in San Francisco. Executive producer is Matt Gardner. Our theme music was composed by Ann Noctrieb Zessiger and Robert Powell, with title creation provided by NameLab Incorporated of San Francisco. Program information and Internet audio is available on the web at technation.com. Tech Nation and Biotech Nation are productions of Tech Nation Media. I'm Paul Lancourt.